Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hello, Fintech Beat listeners. Amaya Garrity from QED Investors back on the pod to get deeply philosophical and a little bit technical and talk about the future of identity. Log in with Facebook, log in with Google, occasionally log in with Microsoft, and increasingly Apple. How do you choose when, where, and why to use one of these logins instead of creating a new account? Would you ever log into a financial app using your Facebook password? Most of us think that our identity is something singular, personal, what makes us who we are. But in reality, every functional identity that you have is a statement about a relationship. Your driver's license is a relationship to the state you live in. Your passport is a relationship to the nation. Your login at work, all your emails and passwords, each is a separate identity and a separate relationship. This week, we're digging into what identity really means in the land of fintech. What are the tensions between privacy and open banking, between know your customer and zero knowledge proofs? How do a new wave of biometric technologies change these questions? And can new cryptography give consumers more control while building a more inclusive financial system? Into this mix, there's a new wave of startups focused in particular on the idea of a reusable identity. And today, we're lucky to be joined by the founder of one of these startups and a frequent collaborator of mine, Nate Sofio. Nate is the founder and CEO of Portable, a startup focused on making identities secure and reusable while keeping humans in control. He spent his career as a technical product leader around data, data management, and know your customers. He was a product leader at a reg tech company that I invested in called Arachnus and was my co-author on too many essays on APIs and the future of banking. So sit back and relax as we talk about the nature of identity, what it all means, and the future of economic activity on the internet. Nate, welcome to the show. Elias, thanks very much for having me. Uh, I love the form factor upgrade, short beats what is it, seven, eight, nine blog posts we had a couple of years ago? That's right. Podcasts are a lot easier to deal with than blogs. So so let's dive in. Nate, what is identity and why do we have so many of them? Yeah, so we'll get philosophical real fast, but I'll try and keep it fairly practical for, for the folks, uh, folks at home who are probably listening to us while doing their dishes or something. So the past couple of years have been really interesting for identity. And in an era of chat GPT and bot-fueled deepfake fever dreams, you know, I think therefore I am doesn't really cut it anymore. And so kind of like what you said at the top of the intro, identity is not just stuff that we assert about ourselves, it's what others assert about us and what can be determined by the exhaust of our existence, if you will. It sounds trippy, but, it, but it's true. You know, cash flow underwriting, for example, is a great example of this, and I'll come back to it, where it's something you can determine about someone based on some activity and metadata that gets thrown off somewhere else. But the assertion thing is really important. 
sometimes it's a function of what we choose to disclose. And sometimes it's a function of what about us can be retrieved, like credit score. And like you rightfully mentioned, ID is contextual and it's relational. Sometimes it's called uh, tied to access and sometimes it's not. And we can pick apart what authentication and authorization are if we want. And I guess the, the thing that we all are very familiar with is that it's often bound to physical documents. And we're living in an era of rapid dig, uh, identity digitization, but there's still a whole lot to do to support digitally native ID. So we're kind of in this like liminal period. I love this concept of assertion, right? So when you are talking about your identity, this is not the political idea of identity. This is about, I am who I say I am. And how do you tell whether I'm lying? Exactly. And so this is, this is actually a good time to bring up that split between authentication, sometimes called authen, and authorization, which is what are you allowed to access? And usually they, they happen those, those in that order. So this actually, I'll try and answer this with respect to the fact that we have like different types of identities, right? There's, there's stuff I can just tell you about myself that are generally self-evident, like I have brown eyes or stuff like that. Um, there are things that I can tell you that have some sort of what's called a root of trust somewhere else. Like I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and my driver's license says so. So that kind of substantiates my relationship with the city and, and the state. And in that example, I mean, you talk about this idea of authentication and authorization. So the driver's license is a good example of that, right? You went to the DMV and they authenticated you, they gave you a license. And then when you go to the airport, they'll check your driver's license. And presumably they know something about, you know, uh, Pennsylvania driver's license that allows them to say, this is a valid one and they can look and they can connect that valid driver's license to this person standing behind in front of them when you lower your mask. And it's, so there's two parts of this. The first is a, a funny anecdote I'll share in that when identity is kind of physical documents all the way down, things fall apart. So I'm a special case because I wasn't born in the United States. So my birth certificate is from Columbia in 1988. It looks like something you got out of a Cracker Jack box. Like with all due respect to the like civil infrastructure of Columbia in the eighties, it is what it is. And so I went to Penn Dot, I don't know, maybe about a year ago because I was still on a Connecticut driver's license. And they picked up my Columbian birth certificate and had no earthly clue what to do with it. They looked at me as if I had five heads. So they had to like take it back. They had to ask a guy who knew a guy who Googled something and then called a guy. So my experience in the DMV was much longer than average because they basically had to do whatever they needed to do for doc verification in order to supply me with a new doc that could get then get verified downstream for other doc verification. And that's, that's kind of the real promise of digitalization, right? That like, if your birth certificate had been, uh, you know, digitized, so to speak, then there should be in some future state, like a way for the DMV of Pennsylvania to talk to the Social Security Administration of Columbia and the Social Security Administration of Columbia could 
you know, assert, hey, this Nate Sofio character is the, you know, we have one of those in our records. And, you know, there'd still be the question, is it the same Nate Sofio? But at least the question of like, is this a document? Did this ever happen? Is it a forgery? You know, could be brought forward from the past into the present through the power of digital, uh, digitized document, digital databases. That's right. Now, there's obviously a half a dozen other considerations there about, you know, is it the, you know, the Social Security Administration of Columbia's job, or is it the U.S. Social Security Administration because I'm a citizen, or is it something that Hartford has to sort out at the state level? That stuff is is far far from solved. But to to step back a little bit with authentication and authorization, authentication just has a lot of challenges because it's either something you have, something you know, or something you are, preferably more of those at once, which is how we have landed on this very commonly occurring phrase, multi-factor authentication. It's mm -hmm. name and a password is only one factor. What else can we do here? Oh, we'll send a special code to your email or your phone. Or we'll ask you to do face ID or touch ID on a mobile device. Or, you know, the new hotness in the past couple of months is passkeys, which have this added benefit of something you are or have your face and something you have, which is your device, which can also be trusted. So you can mash those up into like a single step or MFA. And it's really cool. It's, con it's convenient. People like it. There is a little bit of a learning curve, but I think it holds a lot of promise. And all of those get to this idea of trust, right? That at some level, when I'm doing that, I'm trusting a web of previous a previous activity that uh, people don't get that many cell phones in their life that, you know, I had to go to an Apple store or, or something like that, that, um, that Apple's security is pretty good. There's this whole web of trust built into that simple idea of, oh, you know, use your face ID on your phone to verify. Exactly. So, you know, authentication is very complicated because it's how much assurance do you need for a specific thing? It's why in European regulations and some US regulations stemming from NIST, there are levels of assurance. And the higher the level you have, the more stringent you are about what is an allowable doc, you know, how strong is your proof, stuff like that, which is interesting in context of maybe something you want to bring up later around, you know, any type for non-banking, but other recreational cases where you need to prove that you're 18 or 21, that's a different ball game than trying to open up a bank account. This goes to this idea. I mean, I started with the idea of login with Google, but to, to the point that you've been making, login with Google doesn't prove very much about me at all. It only connects a email address that anybody could create with a password, which hopefully people keep their password secure, but it doesn't create that much uh, in terms of, as you said, the root of trust. So walk us through some of the different kinds of identities. You just alluded, there's like age-based verification, that's a kind of identity. But at the polls, I think we have this kind of login with your Gmail address, which is just like a way to get an email to you. And then at the other end, you have this kind of, you know, maybe the bank grade identity. So is that the full spectrum or how do you think about the spectrum of identities? 
Yeah, so it's, I'll try to answer this in two parts. So authentication has a spectrum based on the level of assurance you need. And then you get into something much more abstract, which is authorization. And so that's what are they, what are they allowed to have access to? So those are things about, you know, from the business context, it's like IAMs, you know, is this person an editor, an account owner, an administrator, you know, stuff like that. Um, on the consumer side, it takes a much different form because authorization ends up being either binary, you have an account or you don't, or for credit and underwriting, it's okay, based on the summative value of these claims and whatever risk engine I have, they're going to land somewhere on the spectrum of a credit limit or something or an APR or something like that. In other words, my credit score is also a form of identity. It doesn't identify me uniquely, but identifies me as a type of person who has just like if I have an airplane ticket, I get I'm authorized to access the airport. If I have this thing called a credit score attached to or as part of one of my identities, I get access to credit. Exactly. And so I think, you know, to go a level deeper, when you say types of identity, there's two parts of this. There's the trust aspect, or we could also call this the, the attribute based aspect. We could also call it the claim claim aspect. And then there's the form factor aspect. So on the trust or uh, claim aspect, you have some stuff we already rattled off. So state and national IDs, which are the commonly accepted baselines for legal personhood. So the flip side of that is people without IDs are valid people. There needs to be a way to verify them. The stuff we say about ourselves, this is what others say about you. There's groups you're a part of. So like, I don't know, I'm a borrower through Ernest or I'm an alumnus of Penn. Uh, there's things that you can infer. So credit underwriting through cash flow or is this person a bad guy through graph analysis? Those are all different ways you can either derive attributes or verify attributes that tell you something about someone. And that's very different from form factor. And I would say right now, the hubbub in digital identity, particularly reusable identity, is largely a knife fight about form factor. And so, you know, from the portable perspective, we really lean strongly into things called decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials. We can, we can dig into that in a little bit. I have a kind of a pretty interesting story I'll tell you later on about how we think about this as the shipping container for identity. And so if you think about what shipping containers did for global GDP a couple generations ago, we think there's an opportunity to standardize how verifiable information about ourselves moves around, is disclosed and recertified in ways that simplify a lot of things that are currently giving us a lot of It seems like form factor is not really a question about biometrics then. It's, it seems like your insight is that the interesting questions are about how data moves from point A to point B, and, and then the privacy protections that are possible in that context. I mean, you know, Nate, one way that I've been thinking about this is to look at the privacy pressures that come to bear in newly legalized vice businesses like online gambling or the cannabis dispensaries that are opening up in my neighborhood. I mean, those businesses really only care about how old you are. So if a customer wants to participate, they might want to demonstrate their age without leaving a detailed record of, of who they are. So how are people navigating those privacy pressures in the context of what you're describing as the form factor debate? 
Yeah, so let me think about where to start with that one. Let me start off with privacy, and then maybe I'll comment about some form factor things, and then what what is kind of worth talking about with with respect to the vice businesses. So the privacy stuff is very, very interesting because it's starting to back up into this elevated consciousness around consumer data rights, mm-hmm. for instance. So you have IDAS in Europe, which is the European digital identity kind of framework. Um, you have like a pan-Canadian trust framework now. Um, and sort of in the US, um, we'll have you know, Dodd-Frank 1033. But that's, that's in an open banking context. The reason why those things are very prominent in people's working memory is that every time you open up an account or have to assert something about yourself for a service, that reliant party on the other end has to collect and process stuff. And as stuff becomes even more digital than it is today, that's leading to over-verification, identity fragmentation, and siloing. So that means my claims about myself have now been thrown into innumerable black holes, decisioned for reason or another, and I have access to stuff. But that data is just out there. And this is, it's sort of a good example, maybe using our social security numbers, right? If you read your social security card, they'll say, don't give this number to anyone. And yet, because it is the unique identifier, the unique numerical identifier, we've all been conditioned that we have to give our social security number to basically everyone who asks, because it's the way that we've uh, verified our identity um, or connected to some root source of truth in the credit bureaus or somewhere else. So it's a good example of the tensions that come between a piece of information that is supposed to be private, and yet because it's unique, it's now spread all around uh, the internet. Exactly. And so you have a couple of things happening all at once. It's you know, identity information is continuing to be spread all over the place for different types of verification reasons that are many. That's one. And so you have people stepping up and saying, hey, we shouldn't actually be spreading this user information hither and yon. It's vulnerable. The bigger, the more surface area you have, the more vulnerable it is, just statistically. The more times it's changing hands, the more vulnerable it is. And it's a bad user experience to have your stuff everywhere with no recourse to self-aggregate, among other things. On the business end, people are starting to search for a way to say, hey, I need to verify X and Y without leaking additional data and without holding on to more than I would strictly need. So that's a good point to jump into reusable uh, identity. Both businesses and consumers have incentives to try to limit the amount of data that gets spread around. So on the consumer side, this speaks to the question of what it means to have ownership over your data. And at the same time, for as long as I've been thinking about this, going back to Treasury, banks have been complaining about how much effort it is to go through the KYC process. So you put those two ideas together and we get to see why reusable identity is kind of the holy grail of identity here. So shared, but also portable as your company is named. So you're not the first though to try to attack this idea with a startup. And Nate, I'd love to have you explain like, why is this the right time for a reusable identity breakthrough? It's it's a period of just max tailwinds across a bunch of different factors. 
So I think one example, macroeconomic conditions are squeezing costs of acquisition and total cost of ownership for consumers creating bank accounts and fintech accounts. Add on top of that, that banks are arguably starting to lose the deposit race to digital alternatives. What that means for us is that the costs of re-KYCing and the costs of consumer conversion are just like way too high, but they're stuck being high because of that starting from scratch problem. So that's why the, you know, I would say if you wanted to mark to market the call for like the price of an API call for a verification, it's like a buck fifty because you always have to do the handwork of re re-verifying someone and or their ID and or making sure that their face matches the ID, stuff like that. And so that's kind of issue number one. Enterprises are looking for ways to figure out where else, where can we move costs around to convert more? The second thing we should, you know, have a note of thanks to the crypto universe because they're the ones who've started the discussion around normalizing a wallet as a form factor. It's starting to shake some of its, you know, uncertainties or stigma having come from that universe and is now becoming much more of a form factor people are getting used to. And a wallet in this case just means a sort of a digital repository of a, of certain data, but that that you as an individual own, you own that digital repository as opposed to it being stored at your bank. Exactly. And so, you know, there's other kind of popular versions of this that are less self-custodial. So PayPal is a great example. I have a bunch of payment methods in a digital wallet. I can deploy a payment method on demand for a specific merchant in the network. Coming at it from the crypto angle, it's I have my keys and any other information about myself inside this secure container that is hot or cold or on my device or in the cloud. And I can deploy those things in smart contracts or on-chain to assert certain things or perform certain kinds of transactions. Why that's important is that it's pushed the actual nomenclature of identity and attribute management all towards the wallet language, whether you're coming at it from the Web 2 side or the Web 3 side. Third tailwind is kind of what we chatted about, open banking and consumer data rights. So that's DIAC, IDAS, other wild acronyms. The standards that we talked about would be the fourth one. So face ID, touch ID, pass keys, stuff like that around just kind of pure authentication protocols. And then the last one, which is, I, in my opinion, the most interesting here, but might take a little bit of picking at, is probably peak awareness or just before peak awareness about federated versus de decentralized identity, identity systems. And so why that's really, really important is that this notion of building secure networks of good identities is not new. It's why we had you know, credit bureaus form. We need ways to say, here's a universe of thing, real people that have some claims about them. Obviously, credit bureaus are not without fault for both technological and systemic reasons, but it's a, just a simple example. And so, you know, federation versus decentralization is really one of those, the most interesting tailwind because the fundamental goals are roughly the same, reusability, 
but they're extremely different in terms of how they take a swing at the problem and the level of consumer involvement or the fraction of that universe that is consumer oriented versus business oriented. Like definitely can talk more about that one, but I would say those are the five or six tailwinds that are all pushing the market towards figuring out what reusability looks like. It could be generic. It could be within the financial services context. It could be a blend. And so let's let's dig in as we close. You know, on FinTech Beat, we spent a lot of time talking about the crypto world. We're all aware of the kind of ideological power, the consumer draw towards sovereignty, towards decentralization. But we started talking about the recognition that identity has to be in relationship to something, right? My identity of the driver's license, that is a relationship to the state. So um, what is federated identity as compared to decentralized identity? So federated identity, to use the example everyone's most familiar with, would be like sign in with Google. It's you have kind of a identity provider or an IDP that is kind of the root of trust for specific pieces of user identity, that user can then go call on that identity provider at various different points to sign up for stuff or sign into stuff. Um, I would say typically this is kind of couched in the same universe as those who talk about consumer permissioned data. So if I'm logging into my bank to allow an aggregator to share that information from the bank to a FinTech app, that's still very much federated. The bank is, op is operating it as, as its root of tr own trust for account information. The aggregator is the ferry boatman of the information. And then the reliant party can consume whatever they need to consume to do what they need to do to originate this customer. The whole like idea of federated and user permission data is very database centric. A common form factor would be autofill. You know, we're kind of familiar with that these days. And in a manner of speaking, it kind of has fairly rigid credentials. You know, there's kind of a, in computing terms, you might say in the Google case, Google is the so-called certificate authority for this person in the Google environment. But the central thing, right, is that in the idea of decentralized identity, I carry all that knowledge with me. In the idea of federated identity, I'm just giving you permission to ask mother may I of Google. That's that that's right at like a very high level. Um, but decentralized identity does some very, very cool things if you lean into the, oh, a person can take stuff with them from point A to point B. And this goes back to the thing that I mentioned before about shipping containers and increasing the GDP of the, the world. So from our perspective, decentralized identity, when using standards like verifiable credentials, it allows people to say, okay, I'm going to take some claims that were attested to by my bank. I'm going to take some claims that were attested to by some other element in the network. All of those claims might be cryptographically signed. So there's a lot of math, heavy lifting done to substantiate the data, substantiate the signer of that data and the under, under, underlying process. They all kind of go back to me, or at least Car effectively carbon copies, depending on what you want to do for record retention. So from my perspective, let's say I have a credential signed by Chase and I have a credential signed by, I don't know, Fidelity or something. 
Chase might be, you know, my account information. It gives you the notch of verification a reliant party would need. It tells them my address. And Fidelity tells them some other stuff about some suitability. So those are with me. Um, they're secure. They're cryptographically signed. They're non-reputable, like a lot of other fringe benefits from being wrapped in that. I can then go to some lender or some reliant party and say, hey, I'm going to connect with this, this method. I'm going to connect with Portable and share the stuff out of my wallet or my shipping container and disclose it to this reliant party. Now, without getting too like Schrodinger's boxy about it, they can ask me if I have the stuff before seeing the stuff. And that's a really important privacy preserving mechanism. You can also wrap it in other kinds of authentication. So this reliant party has to prove that they're them to me before I start sharing stuff. And this way you prevent hijacking and ATOs and stuff like that. And ATOs are account takeover. This is one of the major ways that we have fraudsters uh, perpetrate fraud on banks. Exactly. And seven out of 10 breaches are because of ATOs and phishing. Anyway, that aside, so you've completed that two-way authentication, and then you can say, oh, wait, I can share all this stuff based on what the Reliant Party requires. The Reliant Party doesn't have to phone home back to Fidelity or doesn't have to phone home back to Chase. Because the proof is in the container. Exactly. And they don't have to rerun stuff themselves. So instead of paying ones of dollars or tens of dollars to run KYC, run a bureau check stuff, they're able to verifiably consume stuff that's been verified by other known entities using verifiable processes, plus a lot of other metadata and potentially evidence that comes along with it. So imagine a super extreme version of getting carded by a reliant party where the bouncer over at Robinhood now can just look at a set of claims and say, welcome to your account. And that origination now takes 12 seconds instead of five minutes. That's the intended goal. That's why it's powerful. Yeah. So Nate, as we wrap up, you've been in startup land for a, a long time. This is your first time as a CEO. What has been the hardest part about this CEO journey and what has been the sort of most invigorating part? So as you can imagine, deciding to start a startup in the middle of a pandemic was somewhere between catastrophically stupid and naive. But I believed in it anyway, because I've been in this the identisphere for a decade. I would say getting starting to build the team. So for folks at home, by the way, um, I had this idea in 2020. I went to Wharton for my MBA to kind of put flesh on it. In 2021, we raised some money from Pear out in the Bay Area. And then that's when the rest of the story started. I would say the early days, particularly the second year of my MBA program, were quite hard. You know, I was meeting my co-founder. Um, and, you know, that was my first run-in with things outside of my control, namely the war in Ukraine. He was living in Kiev at the time after doing some stints in Europe. And we're like, oh my God, we have to get him out. So that was actually one of the hardest things I'd ever done is make sure my co-founder doesn't get conscripted and die in a war that is still going. So that anecdote is not a startup anecdote. That is a 
your life in someone else is in someone else's hands anecdote. Um, thankfully it all worked out and, and Alex is nice and safe, but that was something I was not prepared for in one of the hardest two, three month periods that I've had to live through. Oh, right. And we were raising at the same time. And so like we got Alex out and then closed our round in May led by, by Harlem and some others. So that was very, very tough. But I think the hardest thing that's not that situation is productizing standards that are still being standardized. And so taking in feedback from the Web3 world, the Web2 world, the regulatory world, the security world, the privacy world. Identity is multidisciplinary in ways that a lot of other industries are not. And so having to do, you know, day in, day out, doing the, the alchemical legwork of figuring out what is important for us to act on and what is not, you know, what to prioritize versus what's not, that's, this is, I'm going to cheat my way out of this answer. It's the hardest thing we have to do, but it's also the most fun I have in my job. You know, it's easy to go after like cool, shiny stuff around like different types of cryptography and like technical stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's let's make KYC not suck and let's make open banking everything that it's actually supposed to be versus what it is now. How do we continue to make that happen? Well, I think that's the that's the important question. So, Nate, we appreciate your time and thanks for coming by the podcast to share your wisdom. This was a ton of fun, Amias. Thanks very much for having me. We should stick to this format instead of essays going forward. I agree. I agree. More <laughs> podcasts, fewer essays. I have to confess that as a former public servant and currently semi-public person, I find it hard to be as protective of my privacy as I probably should be. But whether we are the types who wish to be forgotten or are comfortable living our lives on the internet, all of us probably feel a nagging unease at the amount of data that's out there about us. How many times have we given our social security number to a financial institution, a cell phone company, an insurer? How many different merchants have taken our name, address, and credit card number? How many times have we been asked at the name of our first pet or our favorite high school teacher in some supposedly secret question? In our increasingly digital world, Nate and his startup Portable are promising technology that allows us even easier access to the digital services we want, with less fraud, more privacy, and hopefully true ownership of our digital selves. But I'm worried that this conversation often misses the hardest part, that this is a practical problem of coordination. Even in attempts to give us more control, We'll need to get the cooperation of dozens of corporations, large and small, that we rely on for everything from banking to shopping to having fun. So this is not just a technical problem. It's a problem of data standards and ultimately policy with a long and winding road ahead. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.